put that coffee down. Coffee is for creators only. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm inviting you to an exclusive accountability program that will help you set and achieve your creative goals. It costs nothing but your time and patience. Go to coffeeisforcreators.com to learn more. You're listening to Trumpet Dynamics, the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. Young, old, professional, amateur. Maybe you never miss a day of practice, or maybe you're coming back to rediscover the joy you once knew playing your horn. For those who love and are fascinated with this crazy, massive metal tubing that no one can seem to master or is wise enough to not admit it if they have, this show covers all of the trumpet dynamics. Hey everybody, James Newcomb here. Thanks for pressing play on the show. This is a really, really amazing episode that I'm uh, I'm just really excited to put on the web and have whosoever will listen in. This is with Ben Neal. You spell his last name with two L's, so it's Ben, N-E-I-L-L. Uh, find him on the web at benneal.com. Ben is the inventor of the mutant trumpet. And uh, if you're wondering what exactly that is, it's kind of what you might imagine. It's got two bells. No, I'm sorry. It has three bells. Two of the bells are standard B-flat trumpet bells. And then he also has a a piccolo trumpet bell on there with a trombone slide. So, I mean, if you're wondering what a mutant trumpet might look like, there's a, there's a, a description for you. So I'm about to hand it over to, uh, well, myself interviewing Ben. But before I do that, I want to let you know that there was a bit of a snafu with my recording equipment. I was recording my side on my uh, audio workstation. uh, And I had some sort of issue with my microphone that was plugged in there. And we ended up using uh, the Zoom recording. And because I had that issue with my microphone... With my audio software, this I had the same issue with the Zoom. So it starts out with my, I guess, decent podcast microphone. And then the rest of it, about four minutes into it, is my computer microphone, which sounds really bad. But that's okay because I didn't say that much because all I did was ask a few questions. And Ben did the vast majority of the talking. So it really doesn't affect the outcome of the episode all that much. I just want to let you know. Now, I want to also let you know that we do get very in-depth describing the mutant trumpet. And I have prepared a video uh, to go along to complement this uh, this podcast. And I, I don't have the video up on like a website. I'll, I have the video on the mobile app that I have for my company, Committed Media. And that's you, you can also find uh, the Trumpet Dynamics podcast, the Musicpreneur podcast, podcast artistry, all kinds of stuff on the mobile app for Committed Media. And it is in that app that you'll find uh, a video that will go along or that will complement this 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 podcast. 
So rather than trying to imagine it, what, what it might look like, you can do one of two things. You can either go to Ben's website, bennneal.com, or you can go to the mobile app and you can like watch and see the, the trumpet as we're describing it. So it's a little feature that I wanted to get up there for you guys. So to get access to that mobile app, uh, so you can watch the video as well as get access to many, many other free offerings that are on the app, just go to trumpetdynamics.com and you can find the little sign-up form, enter your email address, and we'll tell you how to get access to the app. So without any further ado, I now hand it over to yours truly, interviewing Ben Neal, talking about the mutant trumpet. Hello, sir. Hey, how you doing? I'm well, thank you. Every time I bring somebody new onto the show, I ask, how did you get started on the trumpet? I want to hear your story. School band, probably like most kids. Um, and it was seemingly trumpet or alto sax. I remember I, <laughs> I brought home both. I had them both out in the backyard I'm from North Carolina, uh, outside of Winston-Salem. And, uh, I think mom liked the trumpet and dad liked the sax, so I went with the trumpet. No favoritism there? I hadn't listened to a ton of music for either instrument. So, you know, I don't think my my decision wasn't, uh, you know, like totally informed by much other than some kind of raw instinct, you know? Because some people, will, some people, they'll say they're six years old and they see somebody play the trumpet and they're like, I want to do that. That wasn't really my, yeah, my experience. Yeah. So it was, you know, they get, and I, I actually did, uh, fool around with sax. Uh, I, I would bring, I brought a sax home a couple times in the summer, uh, you know, just to, you know, try to see if I would enjoy playing that as well. I never really got serious about it, but, uh, I played baritone horn for a couple of years uh, when I was in junior high. Uh, I looked at French horn. I, I, you know, I, I never really got serious about it, but you know, I had a couple band directors that I think they needed some low brass, you know, so I jumped in for a year or two, but, uh, but yeah, then I, I started taking trumpet lessons at the North Carolina school of the arts in Winston-Salem when I was in about eighth grade. And that was, you know, that was when I started to have that experience that you just mentioned of, I distinctly remember uh, the, uh, the brass quintet, the Piedmont brass quintet, which was in residence at the North Carolina School of the Arts, came to my high school. And uh, I think that would have been, I was in ninth grade. And that was the first time I had really heard virtuoso brass playing live. And I was just completely knocked out. That's when I had that experience that you're talking about of, wow, I want to do that. I want, I want to, I want to be able to do that. You know, they were playing like the Malcolm Arnold quintet and a lot of music that I wasn't familiar with. That was also very exciting to me. Uh, and, and then I started studying with Ned Gardner, who, uh, was, you know, one of the founders of that group. And, you know, just got more and more serious about it from that point. How does one go from being awe-inspired by the Malcolm Arnold Quintet to like building to, to the mutant trumpet? 
Well, um, I think for my generation, at least, you know, a lot of people that, that I know, um, we, I, I grew up listening to, to rock. Uh, I mean, like that was really the music that I was like most excited about was rock. Uh, um, I, uh, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, you know, when I was uh, six years old and, uh, which was kind of life-changing, frankly, uh, like for many kids. And, um, by the time I started like buying albums, the Beatles were, it kind of faded out, but, uh, I got, uh, very interested in art rock, uh, David Bowie, Brian Eno, King Crimson, all that kind of stuff. Also, I was uh, introduced to, um, you know, like ECM, jazz, Keith Jarrett, uh, John Abercrombie, some of Miles' stuff, but I didn't really start listening to Miles a lot until later on. Um, and then I, I went to, uh, I, I studied classical trumpet. Uh, all through high school. I went to Eastern Music Festival for three summers. I was there with Wynton Marsalis for a couple summers. Um, and But I was, uh, my teachers uh, at that time were, were pretty straight classical. I, they were very strict kind of classical. Uh, and I think I got a great training. Um, they, I was schooled in the Arnold Jacobs uh, breathing methods and uh, so I, I think, you know, I had a really excellent fundamental training. Um, and then I went to Youngstown State University. I auditioned for a bunch of colleges, but I went to Youngstown State University. I studied there with a teacher named Masato Pellegrini, who had been recommended to me by one of the members of the Piedmont Brass Quintet who was from there. Of course, YSU was not a very known school. I did audition and get into other conservatories, but it was reasonably priced and it was just, I don't know. I had a, I can't, again, it was one of those kind of instinctual things. I, I had a feeling about it and um, I ended up going to school there. And so while I was there, I started getting more interested in performing contemporary music. Uh, I had been introduced even back in high school to the writings of John Cage and Stockhausen, you know, avant-garde classical music. And then I uh, also got introduced to the music of John Hassel. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with John Hassel. He, so he is a trumpet player, composer. He's in his 80s now. Uh, he did uh, several albums of Brian Eno. He was on the Talking Heads Remain in Light album. So that was really the music that I was most passionate about. And all of a sudden, here's this trumpet player who is doing electronic trumpet uh, in that context. And I got very excited about that. And my trumpet teacher, uh, I, I owe him, uh, Asato Pellegrini, who's no longer with us, but I owe him a lot of uh, respect in terms of how I ended up pursuing this type of career because I started bringing in all these avant-garde pieces to my lessons to play on my recitals and things. And he said to me a number of times, he's like, you know, I think you could write music like this. Why, why don't you try to write something? You know, and I think that was really unusual for like like some of my other teachers that were more traditional, classical Bernard Edelstein. I studied with and 
I don't think they would have ever said that, you know, but, but Pelly was what we called him, uh, was, you know, he really encouraged me. And, uh, then around the same time, just coincidentally, the, the punk new wave scene, there was a really active punk new wave scene in Akron, Ohio. This is in the late seventies, early eighties. Devo was from Akron, the pretenders, there was a whole circuit of bands and clubs. A lot of the UK bands were coming over and performing at this club called the Bank in Akron. So I started getting involved in that. Playing, I started playing with a couple of bands, and then I started my own band uh, with some other people I was in school with. And that was when I started fooling around with the idea. I had a removable bell, still have it, removable bell C trumpet. And I would take the bell off of the C trumpet and stick it onto the first valve slide so that I would be able to switch between muted sounds and open sounds. Of course, that meant that the first valve didn't work normally anymore. Uh, and so it was, it was very limited. It was just kind of an effect. And also visually, it was kind of crazy looking, you know, for this sort of new wave scene that I was in. And then I also, as I was messing with it, it wasn't just that. It was that all of this avant-garde music was all about mute changes. It was all about, you know, you having to like put mutes in and out and everything. And so I thought, well, you know, it would be good to have a, a, like be able to switch between them. So the French horn player in my brass quintet at YSU had worked at the King Instrument Factory. He was an instrument repair guy there. And so he and I kind of got together and said, hey, let's let's build one. So we got these two junky Bundy trumpets and, you know, he, he put them together. I mean, it was almost, it was almost like a joke at first, you know, I mean, the thing was so ugly, you know, and uh, I used to carry it around in a laundry bag. Uh, I guess I didn't have a case for it. Uh, but um, yeah, you know, I, I started using it in that context of the whole punk thing, punk new wave thing. And then, um, I started getting more focused on composing uh, and thinking about, because after a while, that scene was kind of starting to wane. And then I was, I was planning to move to New York and go to Manhattan School of Music. And I think one of the things about New York and one of my mentors, Jim Masters, he was a jazz trombone player who had gone to YSU. We had a great jazz program there, although I am not a big jazz. I'm not like a bebop player. I, I really, I, I just never quite embraced all that. Uh, that that was it's something that I never saw. But Jim he was living in New York. He was one of the only people. And one of the things that I remember him saying is that the thing about New York is it drives you to your strength. Like, because people are so good in New York at whatever they're doing, you know? So all of a sudden, when I came to New York, you know, I was doing like, I was playing guitar. I played guitar and, you know, synthesizers. I started getting interested in electronics, you know, during that time, got my first little chord synthesizer and everything. But uh, when I came to New York, I, I sort of let a lot of the, the whole rock thing go. And I you know brought my focus back to trumpet. And I started really thinking, okay, let, let's see if I can, my vision for this instrument started to become more serious. And I approached, Robert Moog had an ad in the back of Keyboard Magazine, I think it was like 1980 and 81 maybe. And um, he was looking for special projects. He had sold his interest in the Moog company and he was starting a freelance business. 
So I wrote to him and he was just so great. He, he was really interested in what I was doing. He invited me to his home up in Boston um, and really kind of took me on again. He, he, he mentored me uh, and he put together uh, an electronic processing system for me uh, that was, uh, you know, much more advanced. I had been fooling around with connecting the, the first mutant trumpet with my little Korg MS-10 synthesizer. But, uh, you know, he designed something that was an analog. This is pre-MIDI. Uh, it was an analog pitch-to-voltage system with some synthesizer modules. Um, and then from then, I moved to New York. I met John Hassel. I, I wrote him a letter uh, care of his record label. And miraculously, I still have the letter framed on my wall because it, it was, he was someone that I really looked at as, you know, like that's the person who's doing, you know, what I want to be doing. And when I came to New York, he, he really encouraged me. Uh, and, uh, we became, you know, quite close. He moved to LA just a couple of years after that. But then after that, I mean, I was still doing, I was getting a doctorate in, uh, at Manhattan School of Music, and I was still doing uh, straight trumpet performing. I mean, I played with the New York Brass Quintet several times. Uh, I you know, was doing freelance gigs, a little bit of Broadway, never a whole lot. But, but I was still doing straight ahead playing. But then I just kind of got more and more into doing my own music. And it became, you know, more and more about that through the 80s. And then by the time I got to the 90s, I was putting records out and, and my whole career was uh, really became, you know, focused on being a composer performer. So, so what, what was the attitude? I mean, you mentioned your teacher, uh, Pellegrini. But, like, uh, you, but you also said that you studied with Edelstein for a, a little bit. What, what was the attitude? Was it more like, okay, we can, I can tolerate this. I don't really, were, were they opposed to it or what? I mean, what was the vibe? I, I never, I, I don't, I'm sure I never even mentioned the mutant trumpet to Edelstein. I mean, I, you know, I took, I took lessons with him. I mean, when I got to Manhattan, uh, it was mixed, frankly. Uh, I studied with Nagel at first at Manhattan and then Ray Mace. It was mixed in general. People weren't quite sure what to make of it. Uh, I one one little bit of controversy was that on on uh, one of my doctoral recitals, uh, I did some of my own music on on the recitals, but on one of them, I did uh, the John Cage uh, solo for trumpet from the concert for piano and orchestra from 1957. And I was playing the mutant trumpet and I had all kinds of crazy things going on, like playing into a bucket of water and hoses attached to, you know, kind of a theatrical sort of performance. And one of the people on the panel who on, on uh, who was on the jury, they called it right, uh, was was kind of offended and felt that it was uh, and this is in 1986 uh, that it was, uh, that it, that, that basically I shouldn't be, that I shouldn't pass the recital because I had done this piece that was, uh, like in a sense, you know, thumbing its nose at classical music or something like that. I, I mean, that, that didn't prevail. Okay. It was, it was one person, but yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't, I was, see when I came to New York, 
the music scene was very split between uptown and downtown. Uh, I don't think that really exists anymore, you know, uh, but uptown music in terms of, you know, contemporary music was atonal, Milton Babbitt, uh, you know, all notated music. And then downtown music was minimalism uh, and things. Imp- free improvised music was also very uh, popular downtown in the 80s. John Zorn and, you know, that whole kind of thing. So I lived downtown. My goal was really to be in the downtown scene. But there was no school or anything for that. And, and one of the other things that Pelly had advised me was, you know, he's like, when you go to New York, you want to sign up and go to school, you know, get, get your doctoral degree and, you know, it'll give you kind of a structure. And again, I think that was, it was good advice, but those two worlds for me didn't intersect a whole lot. There was one person at Manhattan who was my thesis advisor, uh, David Noon. He's a composer. He was the head of the music history department at that time. And I I would say he was the only person on the faculty at Manhattan who really got what I was doing. Um, And it was always, there was always, I wouldn't say conflict, but there was a tension there in terms of, um, you know, like looking at this kind of crazy thing and like, why, why are you doing that? Or, you know, why aren't you playing Petrushka, you know? Well, Petrushka is kind of a revolutionary in its own right back in the day. Well, of course, of yeah. course. But yeah. but I can see how people would feel, would feel like you're being a little bit uh, flippant. Well, like it's gimmicky or something like that. Yeah. Well, plus, I mean, look, minimalism you know, minimalism was not accepted in the 80s. I mean, Philip Glass and Steve Reich were... How do you define minimalism? Um, well, Terry Riley, Philip Glass, Steve Reich, Lamont Young. I worked with Lamont Young most closely of all of those four. I, I started studying and working with him right after I came to New York. And I've done been doing this piece for eight trumpets with him since the early 80s which we've recently been you know, doing internationally with a great ensemble. We did it at uh, Disney Hall, the L.A. Phil uh, last year, and Marco Blau organized a bunch of performances in Europe over the last few years. Steve Burns is involved in that. If probably some of your audience knows him. Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah there, there's always been a little bit of tension there in terms of uh, you know, the classical thing versus – and and I guess to to come back around to you know just the the overview of you know the reason that I think I was motivated to do this instrument, a lot of people would ask me like, oh well, do you want to sell it or you try? No, I wasn't. It wasn't about that. Or it, it was about I wanted to create a vehicle where I could have a voice to express myself in the musical vocabulary that I was most passionate about, which was not yeah. just classical music it's something that was you know more connected to popular music and um and 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 when the whole dj uh culture really started to uh blow up in the late 80s and early 90s that was when i really felt i had i found the context that i had been looking for which was a popular music context that could embrace the kind of uh, experimentation that I was doing and also have a more popular and 
uh, you know, commercially uh, viable kind of support in terms of you know record deals and touring and that kind. I want to I want to talk more about like the specifics, some of the technical stuff about the music, but something you said uh, a few minutes ago that struck me is you like New York is going to. I can't remember exactly how you put it, but it's it's like it draws you to your strength. What do, what do you mean by that? Because it, it sounds to me like that was kind of uh, what brought you like home, for lack of a better term, to the trumpet. Very much. Well, but because it's so competitive, you know. I mean, it's. I think what it's it's kind of like if you come to New York. You know, like you could, I could be in Youngstown, Ohio, and I was sort of like dabbling in rock, like playing guitar and writing songs and singing and stuff like that. But when you get to New York, there's thousands of people doing that, and and that's all they're doing, and that's what they're and they're really good at it, you know. And the same thing with with you know. So what I was really good at was trumpet, you know. So the mutant trumpet was my way of trying to fold in all this experience that, and, and frankly, for me growing up, it was a bit of a conflict in terms of, you know, I was home, like, you know, listening to Ziggy Stardust over and over, you know, while I was, you know, playing my orchestral excerpts. Now, I love the orchestral stuff too, but I wanted a way that I could kind of bring those things together. And I think, put you know, coming to New York, Getting immersed in the, the the great thing about when I came to New York in the '80s, there really was a scene. There was a downtown music scene where you could just go out, and you would not only would you hear the music, but you'd meet the musicians. You know, and there were record stores where some of these musicians worked, and there, you know, you just hang out and 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 get immersed in that. And I think that was you know, that also really contributed to me finding uh, uh, the focus, uh, which again was originally almost just eh, like a whim or something. But uh, I remember, I know this guy lives up here in, in Garrison. He was one of the early writers on Saturday Night Live. And he always, he, he was friends with Warhol. And he said Warhol was always that way like about his art. If you watched his interviews and everything, it was always just sort of like, eh, it's just this whole thing is almost just like tossed off or something like a goof, you know? And that's the way I started out, but I became more and more serious about it with time. And so yeah. the mutant trumpet, it sounds to me like it was more like you, it was kind of a necessity as the mother of invention. You had, you had this need to do all these fast mute, cha mute changes to do the music that you wanted. And mm -hmm. that's just your way of, of his very practical thing for you. Also while, and again, you know, in my day, uh, we didn't, we didn't have too much in the way of like career training. You know, I know you do some, you've done work in the area of entrepreneurship and everything. And I, I teach at Ramapo college now and, and, and I teach a lot of that. But I think one of the things that was, I, I didn't have a vocabulary to talk about it, but when I started taking orchestra auditions in the 70s, uh, the first orchestra audition I ever took was for the Fort Wayne Symphony in 1977. And uh, there were 80 trumpet players there all in one room playing the same licks. 
I got to the finals on that audition. I got to the last six, but I, I think that was a bit of a rude awakening for me that I didn't know if I, I was like, wow, you know, there's so many people that are doing this. Like how, how am I going to set myself apart? And I think the mutant trumpet, in a sense, it was like a brand. I was looking for something that would identify me or that, you know, that would give me something, something different than, you know, all of that competition. Um, and, um, you know, as a, again, I didn't think of it as that, but ultimately that was, you know, kind of what it became like something that was just an identifier for me. And, and I will say, you know, there were some historical precedents for multi-bell brass instruments. I didn't know about those when I was making it. I found out about those later on. Um, but, uh, you know, I was definitely inspired by Cage, by Stockhausen. They both wrote about the potential of connecting instruments to electronics. Stockhausen's piece, uh, Sternklang from the 70s was certainly influential. And John Hassel was... Again, the other another. I just keep I come back to him as someone who was uh, such an important uh, mentor. And and for your audience, I mean, if they haven't heard him, he he's 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 an amazing musician. He he just put out an album on ECM a few years ago, but uh, he he's got a full catalog of stuff out there. I'm I'm looking at a photo of the mutant trumpet right now, and now that I see it, it it looks kind of intimidating, like in the video, it looks like it's going to weigh about 50 pounds. But now that I'm looking like a close look, I can see that it would be manageable to hold it. Yeah, the weight, the weight is an issue. Uh, and I mean, I, you know, it's gone through four iterations from that first Bundy. I, I actually sold that one to a museum in Germany in the late 80s. Um, and I started touring a lot in Europe in the eighties and I did a couple of albums on European labels. Those were my first, uh, my first albums. But then in 1990, I got an artist in residency at the Stein, uh, studios in Amsterdam. And that was where the electronic part of it really took off. They were Stein. It's recent, unfortunately it's recently been closed. It, it's no longer in existence. Uh, but it was an electronic music research facility in Amsterdam that was strictly devoted to live instrument development, live electronic software hardware. So um, the all of the hardware controllers and the joysticks and all that was uh, that was primarily created and designed while I was in residence there. I, I do have a hardware engineer in New York, James Lowe, who I also work with. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, it's developed over the years. And then the last one that I had, uh, I, I wanted to make a new one. Uh, and I went to, uh, Hoog Van Laar, uh, in the Netherlands. And this time, rather than just putting pieces of old trumpets together, I wanted to have one really fabricated. Uh, so he made a you know, beautiful version, the new one. Uh, it has a remove the second bell is a removable tuning bell and um it just generally it it just plays you know so well like a, as an acoustic mm -hmm. instrument but um yeah the weight it's it's an issue yeah it's something that i worked with him on and we tried to improve it a little bit in the uh 
you know, in the newest version. I did. I've kept the design fairly similar for uh, like since the early '90s because, like any instrument, you know, you get you get accustomed to where things are. You know, so you don't want to you don't want to totally reinvent it every time because then you know you have to learn to play it again. You know. Uh, but on the new one, I have a lot more going on with my left hand. There are a lot more, uh, buttons and controllers. There's a distance controller. And, uh, so it puts a little bit more of the weight of holding it on my right mm-hmm. hand. Uh, and we kind of worked on that. So, but it's, that's good. You know, we get a little weight lifting. I encourage people listening in. I, this is an audio podcast and I don't, I can't do video. It's not that I can't, it's just that I. I just don't. Yeah. But I would encourage you, uh, if if you're not driving, go to benneal.com, and there's just a link for mutant trumpet, and you can just get a get a look at this. It's it's the first thing that you see on that link, and it's just and you even have a uh, what is it a piccolo trumpet bell with and you use it as like a trombone slide. So it's got three bells, uh, extra set of valves. Uh, which uh, the first, you know, there's uh, the the right hand valves are just normal trumpet valves, and then the extra set of valves. The first valve throws it into a second B flat trumpet bell, which I always have some kind of mute. You know, there's always it. It doesn't play out of all three bells simultaneously. When people look at it, they say, "Oh, can you play chords?" No, it 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 doesn't really do that. What it enables me to do is have different mutes in the bells, and then by using the valves, I can, I can make slow transitions, almost like filtering. Mm-hmm. One of the concepts of the instrument that came, on, came around early on was to try and emulate electronic music gestures with an acoustic instrument. Again, that goes back to the music that I was performing. Uh, composers were interested in this whole idea of expanding the timbral aspects of, of music and so by having this extra capability of using multiple mutes, uh, it, it gives the ability to particularly like a, a slow half valving or, you know, kind of just gradually putting the valve down. So you get a, a, a gradual shift, say, from an open timbre to a Harman mute timbre. It's very similar to sweeping a filter on a synthesizer, okay. you know, so that and then taking that and putting that into the electronic vocabulary and then bringing it back into the acoustic, like that kind of thing. But then, so you got two B-flat trumpet bells. And then the third one uh, is a piece of a trombone slide. So that, that's the second valve on the left hand, throws it into that trombone slide, and there's a pickle of trumpet right. bell on that. So when I have that second valve held down, then I can use the slide on the right hand, and then the third valve on the left hand is a quarter tone valve, so I can uh, do quarter tones. Okay, so if you put the if you push down the third valve on the, with your left hand, then you can do uh, quarter tones with your right hand. It's just a quarter tone down. So whatever I'm doing on the right hand, so like I could do a 24 note quarter tone scale just by playing and and you know depressing the quarter tone valve with the normal fingering, and it drops it a quarter tone. All right, so if you're playing like a Let's just say an F sharp. You got your second valve down. If you press that third valve on the with on the left side, 
It's just going to go drops at a quarter halfway time. between F sharp yeah. and F. Okay, right, and that's and that's for all of the notes. Okay, yeah. Wow, that I mean that just takes a lot of coordination to do that well. It took a lot of practice. Yeah, no, I mean, look, it, it's it, it it takes, you know, that's the thing. It it takes years of of development, and um, you know, I I you, you don't with with electronics. <laughs> The way, you know, electronic music and, uh, you know, digital has exploded and been democratized, uh, there a lot of that in that world, um, and, you know, there's a lot of sort of, oh, uh, you know, this is the new plug-in. I got to have the newest thing. I got to, oh, I got to get this new thing. I got to get this new thing. Like, always updating, like, always, and that's that's not really how i don't think that's necessarily how you develop something that is you know really strong it's not to say that people can't succeed doing that but it takes a long time to really find the nuances and i kind of what i if you right with today's world if you just are chasing after the new thing all the time yeah, you know, you, you, there's a risk that you might never get good at anything. Um, I I think the you know I teach a lot of production courses. I don't really teach trumpet per se in my teaching. I teach music production and music industry. Uh, but what I encourage my students to do, and what I've seen people be successful in the electronic field as producers and everything is to find a particular set of tools that you get super comfortable with that, again, are something that distinguishes you, that gives you a voice, um, and, uh, and and then explore that and, and gradually build it. And it's not always the newest thing, you know? I mean, it's kind of a com- – a lot of times I think it's a combination of old and new. Well, I, I like that it's, it's just an organic development. Like, you weren't trying to just be you, – you weren't trying to just be – a rebel, like you, you had very clear idea of what you wanted to do as a musician. And you said it, this is just going to help me be me. Yeah. I mean, I did want to be a rebel though. You know, I mean, look, I mean, I, I was, I was into a lot of, you know, really out there stuff. I mean, I mean, look, you know, you know, Bowie's like really accepted now, but in 1972 in rural North Carolina, yeah, David Bowie was not quite what people were into, you know. I mean, so so there was there was I did have a desire to uh you know, again to create like something that would you know, set me apart. But you know, I didn't mention Miles, you know, and and as I started getting more into this some for John because John Hassel was also very inspired by Miles. I, I later then really got into all of Miles's electric stuff, like from the early seventies. Um, and then also I started working with in the nineties. Uh, I had a record deal with Verve, and my A uh, and R guy, who was also a producer, who I'm still working with now on this recent Trove project that I'm doing. Eric Calvi, uh, French producer, he had engineered several of Miles' albums in the 80s, Tutu, Amandla, and Decoy. And um, 
I really got into those albums. I, I you know, Miles's electric stuff that he was doing in the eighties, while it was basically maligned by, you know, the jazz establishment. But um, I, I, I was very inspired uh, by those, and I, I had an opportunity to see Miles a few times during uh, that era. Uh, the band with Marcus Miller and um, uh, Kenny Garrett. That definitely uh, also, you know, really played uh, into, you know, the way that that I was approaching what I did. And I'll say the other thing that happened as I started developing the system a lot more uh, was that, and this is, you know, true up until today, even though I didn't come from a background of, uh, as I've mentioned, I, I, I wasn't a bebop player. I, I never really learned to play the complicated chord changes. And when I came to New York, what was going on in the downtown scene was free improv. I really didn't enjoy that music. That, that wasn't what I was looking for. Uh, I, I was always into repetitive music rhythmic music, a lot of like drone, again, minimal sort of stuff, uh, modal music. Um, and, uh, you know, like the idea of just like going on stage and, you know, doing whatever you want to do to me, uh, even though the mutant trumpet was a perfect vehicle for that, I, I could have easily, you know, it, it would have worked, but that, that really wasn't, that really wasn't what I wanted to do. But as I've gotten more and more into working with really interactive computer systems, which I'm using now and have been for 20 some years, I've been getting more, I've been moving more and more toward improvisation. Uh, I feel like, um, you know, so much of electronic music now, I mean, literally anybody can stick a few loops together and, you know, make something that sounds halfway decent. But uh, being able to actually improvise and play with the computer, using a computer as more like an intelligent partner, uh, I find that that's something where uh, having an improvisatory element becomes more and more compelling. I, I didn't necessarily predict that, but that's, it's just happened. Uh, when did you add the, the electronic components to the mutant trumpet? Oh, very early on. When I started working with Moog, that was in the early 80s. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was, you know, really, really from the outset, it was always part of my conception. Um, and in it, and that part of it, you know, really grew, you know, all, all along, you know, and, and really still continues to, you know, I mean, this last version that I, I did, I really just started playing on it a couple of years ago. So now this, you have to describe it it is it's called a, a fantini futuro fantini futuro yeah yeah one of the things that you know again going back to the conversation about classical music and that kind of tension one of the things that i've been interested in compositionally uh off and on throughout my musical history is sampling or um remixing or appropriating um, early brass work, early brass pieces, Baroque brass pieces. I did a whole set of pieces. I had a brass ensemble, brat, it was brass uh, guitar and percussion in the 80s based on Gottfried Reicha and uh, the, the uh, Ablazen music, the German uh, you know, tower music. 
I did a whole series of pieces, some of my earliest recordings, which are, those are on Spotify. Uh, but so for this, uh, I, I was making a new trumpet. So I wanted to have a vehicle to develop the instrument as, cause it, it took several years to, to create this new version with, it had all new electronic controllers and I had to update all the software and everything, which is total pain. Uh, so I was looking for, you know, a piece. I wanted to have a piece that I could kind of use as the development. And I had been researching and I came across Girolamo Fantini, who was uh, historically is recognized as the first person who really played the trumpet indoors up until, uh, and he wrote one of the very first method books for trumpet in 1638. And his, uh, his method book is divided in half into the outdoor music, which is basically like bugle calls, like articulation ex exercises, uh, obviously all played on that, all for natural trumpet. And then the second half is this series of these very simple pieces for trumpet and continuo. And like all it is, is just a melody line and a bass line. You know, there's nothing else really written out. So kind of very minimal in a way. Uh, and so I got this idea to try to draw a parallel between what I wanted to do with the trumpet, which was essentially bring the trumpet into the digital, the virtual world. You know, one of the other things that I do a lot, if people watch the, the demo, is uh, I'm really interested in uh, manipulating and controlling visual material from the instrument in addition to sounds. One of the reasons that I like to do that is that I think it helps the audience understand what's going on. Because when they see me up there pressing a bunch of buttons and they're hearing some sounds, they might just think, oh, well, it's just all pre-recorded. It's not, you know, but if I'm, if there's an image on the screen and I'm going bop, 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 and you see the image moving, I think it sort of brings that to life. So I wanted to bring the trumpet into the virtual world, and I was trying to draw a parallel between Fantini bringing the trumpet from the battlefield to the concert space, which he was recognized as really the first person uh, to do that. He did a very famous concert in Rome with Frescobaldi uh, in right around that time. And I had two artists in residencies at the American Academy in Rome. I, I got really interested in all the architecture. I went to all the places where Fantini was known to have lived and worked. And those, all of that imagery then is incorporated into my piece, Fantini Futuro, which is for the mutant trumpet, Baroque uh, organ and harpsichord with elect, with like uh, bass pedals, you know, like rock bass pedals um, and uh, counter tenor. Uh, the vocals are, the texts are from poems that were written in tribute to Fantini. So, uh, yeah, that was, uh, I premiered that in 2019 and, uh, we did our, we did a performance of it where I teach just like a couple weeks before the whole COVID thing shut down, but I'm hoping we're going to do some more performances of it. And I have recorded it. I, I, I got to finish mixing the recording. And then the, uh, demo video, it, it shows yeah. images like the flags while you're playing. Describe that. Is mm -hmm. that something, if I were to see it live, is that what I would see on the screen and 
Yeah, there, we we have a you know big full size screen behind us as we're performing, like uh, that you know essentially creates like a virtual set. I'm manipulating. I'm always manipulating the the imagery uh, using you know, like different controllers. I I start the piece out from the audience. And I come in, walking in through the audience, and I, I'm one of the things, I'm wearing a little ring sensor on my hand. I'm, I've got a, a conch shell in one hand and like a, almost like a shofar. It's like a cow horn in the other hand. And as I wave my hand around, there are these trees on, on the screen and the trees actually blow. Like it, you hear like... I sample my blowing into the conch shell. And then as I wave my hand around, it makes the trees like, like the winds blowing and stuff. So yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of like fun uh, kind of animation that I do either off of my notes and dynamics, or again, like I added this mo these motion sensors. Another reason for that, that comes back to, you know, the issue when you're doing this multimedia performance is trying to convey to the audience what's going on without it being didactic or stupid, you know, without having to come out before and say, okay, so now when I play this note, you're going to see this happen. You know, I mean, who wants to hear that? You know, I, you just want to experience something, but we're always trying to have a vocabulary where you can articulate what's going on. And that, that was one of my main reasons that I wanted to add these, motion controllers. I'm sorry, how does the ring, you move the your hand, is it AI? It's it's a Wi-Fi sensor. Uh, so there's a, there's a little dongle that's attached to the computer and it's, it's a, it's got a light, it's a light sensor. You can be up to a hundred feet away and, um, and it just, it sends Wi-Fi, uh, sends MIDI data. And it's got scalable tables in there, so you can, uh, you know, you can say I want it to go from zero to fifty or something like that. And also, you can uh, oh, see. I'm not in cam. Oh, we're not videotaping, but you can like. It's got an X Y axis, like so. There's several different ways that you tilt your hand. And then again, I also have a distance sensor on the trumpet, where it just measures. That's an infrared sensor. It just measures how close my hand is. So as I extend my hand out from it, that creates another kind of MIDI control. The new trumpet has 28 electronic controllers on board. Cool. It has uh, 16 momentary switches and then two XY joysticks, uh, four knob potentiometers, a fader, and this distance sensor. So are you the only one that plays the mutant trumpet? Like if I were to go into uh, music R Us down in Raleigh, North Carolina, someday would I see a mutant trumpet for sale or is that exclusive? You know, again, like that's something that that's something that's come up. And when I've done these demo videos, I have gotten some uh, interesting requests from people. Some pretty well-known trumpet players have written me and said, oh, could you know, could I ever play one of the, could you make me one of these or something? And the issue that we run into is that when you're creating, so essentially what the mutant trumpet is, in addition to its acoustic capabilities, 
it's an interface, right? It's a it's a very it's a pretty complex, nuanced interface. But in terms of if I were to to say produce it and sell it, the thing that I wouldn't really be able to sell or to control is what's what is it being interfaced with? You know, uh, it you know just by itself it doesn't do anything. You know, I mean it has to be. It's got to be connected to some kind of software, to something, some kind of other sound generating material. And I actually had a guy who, an entrepreneur who had approached me a few years ago, and we were trying to come up with a, a way of uh, making some sort of an attachment that might just, that, that anyone would just be able to stick onto a conventional instrument, you know, to sell something that would be more, but again, my focus was never in that direction. My focus was always about the music and that this instrument was a vehicle for my own expression and, and then enabling me to create a unique vocabulary as a composer performer. So I think I just, you know, when those ideas have come up or something, I tend to, you know, get distracted by the next record or the next piece or the next show or something, because it's just not, it's not what, you know, I, I really, uh, I really had in mind. I mean, I do feel there's a, there's still considering how, how electronic music has, uh, you know, completely exploded as far as it's, you know, it's acceptance and all the different tools that are available. I do still feel there's a real gap in terms of, uh, really well-developed ways of integrating uh, the acoustic music world with the electronic music world. And I, I've been involved in this group called the New Interfaces for Musical Expression, NIME. It's an annual conference. I've played, I've played on their, one of the early conferences back in the early 2000s, and I, I've gone to many of them and been involved in that. And that's a place where people are developing you know, all kinds of new interfaces and, and new instruments. But I actually think it's one of the things that really neat still is lacking is that electronic music in the world of like popular electronic music, primarily the, the way that it's still performed is by DJs. And while I got a tremendous amount out of working with DJs. I learned so much from DJs and, and, and I love the whole culture of DJs and all, but I feel like after you've gone to see like 10 DJ performances, you, you kind of want something a little more there. There's something missing there, you know, and that's been kind of my, my whole thing is that I have tried to bring these very advanced technologies, which usually would be associated with highly experimental music that most people wouldn't want to listen to. My, my goal was to bring that into a world where I would be able to use those tools to make music that people would want to listen to. And that could even be used for instance, for TV commercials and movies and things like that, which I did a lot of. Well, I don't know if that exact, I don't know if we'll see the mutant trumpet produced in mass, but it, it, hearing, hearing the story of how it came to be, uh, I'm sure it will inspire some sort of, hopefully it will inspire some sort of innovation 
Well, if people are interested, I'm very, I'm always very interested. I welcome, you know, like hearing from people, feel free to contact me through my website or social media. And, you know, I'm happy to give tips on, you know, how to go about getting started with something like this. If, if other people are interested in it, I, I, uh, as I said, I teach and and I enjoy teaching. I enjoy passing on what I've been doing. So, well, this is great. I mean, we, we've been going for an hour now. I know, and I feel bad. I tend to talk too long, you know. So, but what you have to say is worth listening to. <laughs> but uh, that's why I love doing this show is because I'm always learning new things. And man, like I'm just my my brain is spinning from all the stuff I've learned, just the history and the the innovation, and um, I. I would definitely, I would love to do like a round two sometime and just dive deeper into this, maybe get some questions from listeners. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, and I know you had mentioned you'd like to, to uh, maybe have me do like a little zoom demo. If I, if we have a little more, you know, if I have a little more time to think about that and prepare, we, you know, we can do something like that. I'd be happy to work with you on that. I, I need a little more like setup time for that and stuff to make sure I've got all the audio working well, but I'd love to. Until next time. Thank you, sir. All right, James. Trumpet Dynamics is produced by Committed Media, LLC, committedmedia.org. Special thanks to Mike Fax for allowing use of Serenade to a Bus Seat for the show's theme music. To stay on the loop with the growing community of trumpeters who enjoy this podcast and to access the exclusive mobile app with content not available anywhere else on the web, just type in trumpetdynamics.com into your browser and you're off to the races. My name is James Newcomb. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.